people were liking, commenting. It was going crazy. I think that day we got 13K views. And eventually the news outlet just caught wind of it. And we made another story thanking our community for sharing it and, and telling them the results of it and how we got on the news for it. And it's crazy because that story went 10X viral. And I think two or three days after posting that story, we got a major repost. I would have never expected this. It was from Bella Hadid. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. doesn't matter how badly you got beaten down. Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go through that. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Like 100 million views is literally insane, dude. Sometimes all it takes is one viral video to change your life. Following the pandemic, Carho Leung was able to help his fellow businesses in Chinatown and make that area lively again by simply throwing a barbecue. Since Carho had moved to New York at a young age, he became acclimated to the city's fast-paced hustle and learned to always keep trying. Through his passion for connecting with the community and creating experiences, Carho was inspired to open 12Pel a barbershop shoe shop fusion. From humble beginnings to the helm of a multimedia empire generating millions of views, his journey illustrates the boundless possibilities of success. My name is Carl Leung. I'm the founder of 12 Pell. We have a barbershop, well actually multiple barbershops, three locations in Chinatown. We also run a large media business. We do about 100 to 200 million views a month and we pump out short content on a daily. And our content is focused on helping the younger generation, Gen Z and young millennial discover their personal care routine. 200 million views a month. Does that number feel like crazy to you or are you kind of numb to the, <laughs> the, the scale of it? So when I say it now, that number doesn't seem too crazy at all. But if you were to ask me this Three months ago or six months ago, I would think it'd be totally out of reach. Yeah. Where were you three months ago, six months ago? We were still probably at around 50 to 100. And I think that when you see the way that media is currently scaling right now and the amount of users and, and people spending the time on social media, it's, it's become, it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's big. And it seems like it's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And also like the industry is becoming more solidified too. So it's like, there's more opportunity from traditional kind of investors that may have shied away from uh, content online before. So super exciting time to be it. But I, 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 I want to kind of go back to the beginning um, before all of the hundreds of millions of views before New York, I want to start uh, in Maine, actually. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me about like some of like your earliest memories growing up? Cool. I was born and raised in Maine. A lot of people find that very surprising because everything about me says a lot of New York. Yeah. And so when people see like the rolly on the wrist, the New York <laughs> hat, <laughs> literally there's a Statue of Liberty on the side yeah. of the hat too. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You always <laughs> represent. And it's funny because I feel like that's, that's my neighborhood. That's my family. That's my community. Uh, that's, that's where most of my identity was built. Uh, and so growing up in Maine, big part of my childhood, lots of great memories there. A big core memory of mine was when my dad used to push me around in the bike, a tricycle 
and two doors down from our house was a bread factory where they would just pump out loaves and loaves of bread on a daily basis. And we would just get a whiff of that good smelling bread every day. And so I would look forward to my dad getting off work or on Saturdays, being able to push me around around my tricycle. The trucks wouldn't be there because they were all sent out on their deliveries. And so we enjoyed all that space. And um, a deep core memory of mine there is I remember my dad one day decided to remove the 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 tricycle wheels, the two back wheels, the assist wheels really? on the bike. And he held on to the back seat and said, I got you. And he just, he was just walking with me. I was riding and I was a little scared and like, but I, and I kept looking back and eventually I looked back and he wasn't there anymore. And I was like, wait, what? And, and he was so far behind me, at least like 20 feet behind wow. me. And I had just realized I was biking on my own in two wheels. That's such like a core memory of like, oh, I can be independent. Like I, I can do this on my own. That's a beautiful moment. I, and so how did your, did your dad uh, grow up in the States? No, um, my mother and father are both from Asia. My mom is from Hong Kong. My dad is from China, uh, Toy San. And uh, my mom grew up in Hong Kong Island. What was, what, what did he do for work? My dad. Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, my dad, when he first got to America, I know he was, funny enough, he was a barber. Really? Yes. And so that was big full circle moment when, I don't know if we'll, maybe we'll touch upon it later, but like when I introduced the idea of me being a barber and having a barbershop to him and it was just like completely shocking to him. And he, he was in disbelief because that's not what he imagined for me at all. Right. I mean, cause yeah. like when he first came to the U S that was like his first job, like being a barber. Right. Yes. Yes. And so I imagine he was like, wait, I worked my ass off <laughs> to get your ass <laughs> to here. Get to, 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 <laughs> so you didn't have to become a barber, yes. but it's also like he doesn't, I mean, I imagine initially he didn't know the empire <laughs> yeah, would build it, off of that. Right, right, right. And it's hard for them to see the vision. And there's a really funny story about my dad and how he became a barber. Mm. Um, so back in the day when he arrived and it was like around like the, the, the 70s and, or 80s. And I think that very early on, the, the block that my, my shop is on is called Pell Street. Hence, hence the name 12 Pell. But that block was the most bustling block in all of Chinatown. They used to be bars. They used to be restaurants. And before it became what is known today as Barber's Row, because now the street is mostly barbershops and salons, it was once an area for nightlife. And they would go into the morning where like the piano and the tunes would spill into the streets. And there was a corned beef sandwich spot on that block. And my dad went to go eat there with his younger sister. And when he was eating and about to check out, he walked over to the register and they said, hey, that man paid for your meal. And later on, my dad went over to thank him. And that guy was like, you did your hair really nice. What do you do? And my dad was like, I'm actually looking for work. I'm, I'm, I was thinking about going uptown to work at one of the factories where they steam the clothes for like hotels and other things. I was like, come over and work for me. Wow. And his barbershop in Cantonese was called Ming Sing. It, it's kind of like superstar. And he, he hired my dad on the whim based on how his hair looked. Wow. Did he feel like, okay, like this is, this is a place of opportunity from that moment? Oh, I'm not sure if that's how he felt, but I think for sure that's where he got things kickstarted. Yeah. Um, 
And he eventually actually became a chef. So he didn't do the barber thing for too long. He did that for probably one or two years. And then he became a chef. He ended up moving out to Maine to try to open a restaurant. From New York. Yeah. And it was very typical back then for a lot of immigrants uh, from China to come to first they would learn they would work in the kitchen they would learn the trade and then eventually migrate out into the suburbs i mean that's kind of a lot, a lot of what the american dream is is built off of it's right. just like you can here you can come here with nothing and eventually you can own your own business and like mm-hmm. a little piece of america exactly yeah but my dad didn't do so well so really yeah that that ended up closing shop but um fortunately that's where my mom and my dad were arranged for a blind date and they hit it off in New York. And before they went to Maine, my mom started visiting him in, in Maine. And then they made that connection. And then here comes me. <laughs> <laughs> so you get born. You're in Maine for a, a few years. Um, when do you move? Because you moved pretty early to New York, right? Yeah, I moved. We moved to New York when I was six years old. And we moved into our grandmother's house. Sorry. I want to say studio apartment, actually, because it was about 250 square feet. What are some of your earliest memories in New York? Well, I think when I first got here, I just couldn't. I remember not being able to sleep at all mm. because so all, noisy. The, all yeah. the noise. Yeah, I came from no noise to like all of a sudden all the noise. And it was like subtle ambient noise. But that that bothered me. Um, I realized I got a lot of culture shock. I think hitting the New York scene, I realized that like having a lot more people around me having a lot of different types of people around me, I needed to learn to move the New York way. And what I mean by that is like, yo, New York is a, it's, it's, it's the city of big dreams, but it's also a cutthroat hustling place. Yeah. Fast paced too. Like there's always something going on, but if you don't kind of have something going on, it can feel like you're being left behind too. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's literally, I would say eat or be eaten. Right. And I remember early on, I had my first experience of what it's like to be a New Yorker when I went to the park. I had all my Game Boy games and I had a Game Boy at the time because my my uncle, oh, you know where this is going. Oh, I mean, (laughs) as soon as you said, I have all my my Game Boy Boy games. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So I had all my Game Boy games and all these kids crowded around me to watch me play my Game Boy. And I had the one cartridge in my Game Boy. And then when I finished, I looked up the kids were still crowding around me. Time to go home. I turned around me to pick up my bag with all my games and it wasn't there. <gasps> oh, tragic, dude. And it's nuts because I was like, wow, where could it be? And in my head, it just did like, like, oh, I just misplaced it. In my entire life, I've never been a victim of theft until that moment. And it hit everything that I knew and loved and it was gone. And I was in like, this is like my first real taste of like, how brutal it could get. Yeah. Why did you guys move to New York? So we actually moved to New York because my dad got cancer. He had colon cancer. And the medical tech was just better here. Yeah, I'm Presumably sure. because it's a big city. And my mom decided to make decisions. So we sold the house. Um, I think we ended up selling it out for a loss. We sold the cars. And sold it for a loss. Yeah. So we, we, we just because got Because you just had to get up and move. Like there, you're, there's no waiting for the right offer or waiting for the, the right time in the market. No. It's like you have, you have cancer. You have, to, you have to move quick to make sure things are okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of that shifted responsibility onto my mom. And I just watched my mom fight through that. 
And I think that that built a lot of the tenacity and like my driving force for what I do today. And I kind of like reflect about that a lot. But like I saw my mom go through it because she she went from the caregiver of the family to the supporting pillars of the whole household. When my mom first got here and she was looking for a job, she had like less than $200 in a bank account. And that's like after paying for everything for the move. And she knew she had to get work, but she couldn't find a job because she was like the housewife for many years. And she knew she had to learn English. And so she ended up volunteering at this place called the Lower East Side Service Center. But in order to volunteer there, she had to get an interview. And she spent the last of what she had on a jacket. And when she went to go buy that jacket, the, it was at one of the shops in City Hall. I think the total came out a little bit above what she had in her account. And she like begged a guy to sell her this jacket. And the guy was super nice and said, okay, you know what? Forget it. Wow. Like, it, it was maybe like 240 or 220. And then it was like a leather like dress jacket. And then she knew she needed this for interviews. And he was able to give it to her. I mean, I, I can see why that kind of like tenacity would influence you. Did you ever feel like you had to make your own money or, uh, or I guess like was driven? Maybe, maybe it wasn't for the family or maybe it was just for spending money for around, yeah, yeah. <laughs> around New York. New York's like an expensive place. But like, did you ever get into any like of those like early entrepreneurial tendencies? Yeah. So seeing my mom struggle with money also really taught me the value of a dollar, like a single dollar, you know, and made me never want to be wasteful about my money. And so very early on, it inspired me to make money. And, and I wanted to make money for my family. And so at a young age, I would hang out like, like our, I think around six to seven when, when I was seeing my mom go through it. I was hanging out at the car stores and Yu-Gi-Oh was super popular at the time. Really? I, I, I heard Pokemon. <laughs> I'm like, were you, were you into Pokemon yes. and Yu-Gi-Oh? Yeah. Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh. And um, I would hang out at the car stores and people would come in and buy packs. Yeah. And they would only search for like the rare cards and they would just dump everything else. And I would hang out there so often that the store owners, they had so much excessive cards that they didn't need them anymore. They would just let me keep some of the packs that the people would like not want anymore. And that was like my first arbitrage opportunity. I took those cards, I brought them to school and I sold them off like a dollar for five. Really? Yeah. And, and everyone in school ate it up. So really quick with, with, you know, you would, you would sell these, these cards at school, make a little bit of money. Um, are you spending that on anything for yourself? Is that like, how's that money spent? Are you giving it to your family? Like how, how, how are you spending the money or how are you thinking about it? So my first piece of change that I actually made money. I think it was about 60 or $80. Wow. And I had saved it all up. And the one day that me and my mom walked over the path mark to buy groceries, when she was about to pay for the groceries, I took it out and I said, mom, let me get this. And was she like, where did you get this? She was so surprised. She was just like, wait, how do you have this money? She thought it was my savings. But I told her, I was like, no, mom, I'm making money now. She's like, how are you making money? And I was like, I'm selling Pokemon cards. And she's like, don't do that. Focus on school. <laughs> like your typical Asian mom answer, right? Yeah, yeah. But I was like, mom, I want to pay for this. Were you doing okay in school? I was doing all right. Yeah. I think um, a lot of the times I wouldn't say that I was the A student. I was the A minus B plus student. 
It's still pretty good. Dang. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> you know you have strict parents. Yeah. But it's like, oh, I wasn't an A student. I was the A minus. Yeah, student. yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to do my part. Or, you know, like I would I would definitely hear if I was at home. Yeah. Yeah. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. Wow. So how does that like how do you move from like doing Pokemon cards to go, I I guess like sneakers, right? Yeah. So I can tell you around um two thousand and six was sneaker subculture. It was still still like on the internet, still through the forums, still a po- pockets of community. Very, it was like it was a niche at the time, and you really had to go out and seek it. And if you knew, you knew. So like it was back in the days when you were in a pair of Jordan White Cement threes, you walk down Soho, it would break people's neck, and they would turn back and be like, "Yo, nice kicks, kid." Really? Yeah. 2019 was when things started to get a little mainstream. Yeah, I mean, it 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 has grown so much. I mean, like like the 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 term sneakerhead, yes, is is in the the zeitgeist like fully now. Right. But going back to uh, 2006, what was it like with you being like this budding entrepreneur getting into the sneaker game, or or was were you into that arena back then? Yeah. So I I I before I became entrepreneurial with sneakers, I was first a hobbyist, right? I just love, I think I fell in love with sneakers when I saw somebody wear a pair of red Supreme Dunks. And I think there was just so much culture around sneakers that it kind of like engulfed my whole entire mind and interest. And I spent hours just digging and combing through sneakers on eBay. And I finally decided one day I was going to pull a trigger on a pair of shoes on eBay. And how much were these shoes? They were the Olympic 7s. Uh, they had just released and they were about, I think, $110. Okay. Shipped. Which is a lot for how, how, how old are you at that point? I think I was like 13 or 14. That's a lot for a 14 yeah. year old, dude. I, 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 I think I had just enough to be able to pull this trigger and be like, feel comfortable with the purchase. And was your goal to wear them? Yes. My goal was hundred percent to wear them, love them. And then eventually the idea is like, it would still hold this value as a used sneaker and then sell them. And making that first purchase was so crazy back in the day because when you make purchases on eBay, you need a, you need a PayPal account or people would actually send out money orders back then. And like I, I remember going through that process and I, I begged one of my friends to beg his cousin because he had a PayPal account. Because your parents, like you, you didn't tell your parents. No, absolutely not. They would not let me rock with a, like a pair of expensive Jordans, especially a highly sought after, right? They don't want me messing with that type of stuff. And, but I had to find my way because I wanted it. And my friend's cousin ended up helping me get the sneakers and he didn't even know me. Really? Yeah. And it's crazy because back then when sneakers was a subculture, people helped each other out out of sheer goodwill because of the love of the game. And that was the type of culture that I was in love with. So were you making money here? I wasn't yet. But this this was purely just like, this is something I want to own. I want to be part of that culture. Yeah. It was like, making money to fuel my own, like being able to buy the next pair. So like if I sold this pair, it would just get me my next pair and which I would wear and then get me my next pair. And then I think it started to shift into a little bit of business in high school. Yeah. So uh, what high school did you go to? I went to Stuyvesant High School. What is that known for in New York? I'm a little bit of a nerd. <laughs> so, so I think I got really lucky and I, uh, I got into the number one specialized high school. And that was, that was a big deal for my parents because if you're, 
in the Asian community and you get into Stuyvesant, it's like a check mark. What was it like during like going to that school? Because I imagine it attracts a lot of really smart kids. Probably is there a lot of wealth in that too? What is the the student population like? Yeah. Actually, the student population back then was there was a good majority that were Asian. And I think that that comes from the fact of like how Asians view education and the wealth there is, I think, primarily with the Asians, not super wealthy, but our parents will spend the money to send us to prep schools because it's worth it because it's worth it of, of how they value education. Did you value it at that point? I've always valued it just because my mom always put that yeah. emphasis on me. And so like, I didn't know what it was like not to value yeah, it. Yeah, you're like, I gotta get these A's. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You come home and it's like a, it's like a, like 90 and it's like, oh, you could do better. <laughs> 91 next semester. Oh, you could do better. <laughs> it's like, oh damn. Like the, the sky is really the limit with Asian parents. And like, I don't blame them because I, I think of it as like, and, and I think that kind of bleeds into my own view on success too, right? It's like, when we have the opportunity, we're blessed to have the opportunity. So it's always about doing better. And I, and I bake that into like my philosophy towards work and my relationship with work. It's like, let's just do the best work that we can, no matter what we do. And let's always be improving too. Yeah. So I think the way that I apply myself with that work ethic of always doing better and like, it's just the idea of continuously digging through the things that you're curious about, actually. So. That was my way of saying like, hey, like I'm going to do the best I can at school, but because I'm going to do the, my best I can at school, I proved to myself that I can operate at a certain level. So if I wanted to do something that I'm interested in, I should be able to do better at it. So that inspires me to work harder for the things that I'm passionate about. And this very much started to apply in my later years when I started to work as an accountant because I absolutely hated it. So I want to get into that in a little bit, but... Maybe we go to the end of your high school experience. What colleges are you hoping to go to? Oh, I had, I had a big number one on my list, and that was NYU Stern. Why NYU? Big business school. Did you want to do business? Yeah. Big, Why? Big name. Um, I think just going through my entrepreneurial experiences as a sneaker reseller in high school. Well, not really. I wouldn't even call it a sneaker reseller, but as a hobbyist, right? But it's like understanding the game. Well, that, you bought, I mean, you sold, you bought and then sold the sneakers. Yeah. <laughs> like maybe you weren't turning it into a full-fledged business like the business you own today. But like in high school, there's not many people who are. You're, but you're dabbling in the ideas of like supply and yes, demand yes. and uh, arbitrage. Like all these, all these, these uh, uh, business terms and topics and strategies, you're kind of like learning organically. Yes. And, and I'm glad you said that because it was also a very recent discovery for me too that I, I realized that that built my mindset to understand the idea of goodwill exchange and how to harbor really good relationships. And like, like I was saying earlier, like when, you, when people just take care of each other in the community and you feel like you're supported by your network of people, you feel even more bold in your entrepreneurial endeavors. Oh, yeah. Because oh, you know people like kind of have your back. Yeah. And so that, that type of support that I felt made me want to continue pushing, you know, and, and it made me want to continue to explore business more in depth, get a little bit more sophisticated, right? And, and so, so you're like NYU Stern, yes. that is like the goalpost of this is the, like, if I'm trying to make it in business, 
I want to be there. I have to be there. It's NYU Stir, right? Yes, yes. So you got an acceptance letter and then you were there, right? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I applied early and I fumbled the bag. What happened? There were two requirements, two SAT2 two SAT requirements that you would have to submit with your application. I had taken one, but I, the other one was on the way. And the deadline had arrived. But I called into the office and they said, you know, if it arrives when we check the mission, you're good to go. But it happened to arrive after. <sighs> and so you would have gotten in. No, we don't know that. But I was disqualified before even consideration because they ended up checking it before my, before my score. They did a preliminary review to see if everything was in. And then they ran through it and they just happened to pick up my folder for the preliminary review before my score got in. And it was rejected. And I know all this because the funny thing enough is like I, I was so diehard about trying to get in that I called every day <laughs> to try to see like if they checked my folder for the missions. And like I applied as part of like an early program where like if you apply to the early, then you're set. And but if you get rejected, can then you, you can cannot reapply. Oh, yeah. How did that feel? You know what? I think at the time it felt really bad, but I kept going. And I told myself if I wasn't going to win this race, it doesn't mean that I'm out of it. Right. But like, I think you have a lot of perspective right now. Do you feel like you had like a ton of perspective back then too? I think having the perspective now certainly allows me to think about it in a way that frames it so that I don't feel as bad about it. But um, at the time, I think there was nothing to do but to move on. I think that for me, I'm very like the way that my mind runs is like, I'm very practical. I'm very rational. I think like if I take this L, I can be sad about it now, but I can't be sad about it tomorrow because if I'm sad about it tomorrow, then what's tomorrow going to be like? So I had to get my ass back up and I had to think about what my second option was. So what was that? I ended up applying to a ton of schools. Actually, I didn't even know because I was so focused on that one and only that when I was back at the drawing board again, I was just like throwing everything at the wall. And at that point, are you still thinking, okay, I need to, I need to think business. No, I, I think I started to open myself up to everything else. What was everything? Because my parents are traditional Asian American, American <laughs> dream parents. Engineering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, they don't care what I do as long as I get something that's licensed, professional, white collar right you know? so it's like like engineering medicine yeah, yeah. finance yep yep yeah accounting accounting yeah accounting that's that's where we nailed it did you kind of settle on that as a family was it kind of like a familial decision or did you kind of just have that programming and knew that you knew no so i i, I got accepted to a bunch of other schools and uh some of them were in business communications um a lot of the lines they 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 if it wasn't directly business it was something that was related to it. So I knew that accounting was the cl most closely related profession to business that I thought might serve me in the future. And so I just jumped on that one. And I got into a program that was like a, a full scholarship. And so I was like, you know what? If, if I didn't get into the best school, I might as well not pay for school. So um, with, with Baruch, like what was your expectation of the school? And what was it actually like? Well, I think before I even entered the school, my expectation for myself was I was going to crush it because yeah. like I, I had just taken this L 
and I was always an A minus B plus student. And I was always like a up until the last minute counts kind of person. So I would really try to make my best effort up until the last minute, but I wasn't always fully prepared. So like in, in point in case with the application, right? And so I looked at the way that I was doing things and I said, I have to change my attitude and I have to be much more prepared and I have to crush it. So I made, I set myself out for a goal and I was like, yo, I'm gonna, I want to get a 4.0. I didn't end up achieving that, but I got close. I graduated with a 394 or 392. And I was like, I'm going to make the best out of every single opportunity that I take here. And so what, I, so if I'm going to do accounting, I'm going to get all my internships. And so I, I ended up interning all four years, but I started at H&R Block and that gave me my first real taste of customer service in a professional setting. And I loved it. What do you like about it? I love serving the locals, the people in the neighborhood and like being able to help them with their tax returns and like seeing the smile on their face when I was able to explain to them. So you were, you were enjoying this line of work. I loved it. I think uh, as I started to scale up into my next experience, becoming a little bit more corporate, less customer facing, I started to realize that that was a piece that I really missed. And really like on your journey to higher and higher levels in this like accounting profession would probably be less with those people and more with the, the, the corporate entity. Yes. Was, was there a moment where you were like, oh man, like, do I want this to be my future? 100%. I think that happened my, my second year into the profession, but I still kept going. What, what, do you remember what was like going on when you thought that? So I was working at Goldman Sachs at the time. Uh, I was working at their Jersey office, 30 Hudson. And I was walking past Barry Park and there's a basketball court there on the way to take the ferry across the Jersey. And as I'm passing through the basketball court, I see this guy playing basketball, an older dude. And I'm looking at him, he's playing basketball. He's so carefree, enjoying himself. And I looked at that and I go, damn, if I wanted to do that, I couldn't. Like just play basketball. Yeah, like at that very moment because it was Saturday and I was going to work because it was busy season. And everybody's in the office in busy season. And when you're the intern, you don't want to not be there on busy season while the entire team is hauling ass. Right. Because and, you might not get a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> or you might you not get, get asked to get, come back. Yeah. Might not get back, asked to come back for the next season. Right. And so, and I thought about that. And I was like, I didn't even have the freedom of choice. And then I looked at that, that older gentleman. I thought about it. And I was like, wow, it's dope. He has the freedom of choice. And I looked at the people in my office. I looked at that. And I was like, wow, there was a real lacking of freedom of choice here. And, and it made me question like what my life would be like if I continued to grow in this profession. And even though you had these like inklings of like, is this the right thing? Like you're just like, I, I mean, what else is there? Yeah. And so I continued it because of two reasons. Number one, I didn't want to disappoint my family because they were very much invested in this idea of me becoming an accountant and the CPA and all that. Because it, it's, it's a proud moment for, I guess, Asian parents to be like, hey, my son is a licensed professional, right? He's a doctor, he's a lawyer, he's an accountant, you know? It, it, it's, it's- Well, it signals stability, right? Like you're um, something that I've, I've heard other, like, like other my friends that are immigrants where it's like, well, yeah, your, your parents don't 
want you to struggle. get a one. They don't. They want you to struggle. They took a huge risk, right, to come to to a new country and to get you to an like a, an, an education, a place where you can have like a lot of freedom. But what they want you to do is they want you to protect and preserve that freedom for years to come. So it's like you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer. Those are really stable positions. Yeah, and another thing is like I think they come here and they had to be entrepreneurial. They had to figure shit out. They had to take the risks and they know what it's like working long hours after work. And for them, it's luxurious to be able to do a nine to five, get off work and not have to think about work. They, they wanted us to have a good life. Yeah. And for them, that perspective is the good life because my, when my mom got off work, she had to get back to work and take English classes. I used to watch my mom sit by the bathroom light in our 250 square foot apartment and use the bathroom light on a little stool and a table and learn English so she could get her next job. And so she knew what it was like to struggle and she didn't want to see me do that. And for me to be an accountant was like the finish line, right? She knows that after the season is done, I don't got to worry about work anymore. And that's ultimate luxury because my mom never stopped worrying. Yeah. I mean, when you're an entrepreneur, your business is constantly on your mind. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think for them, they just didn't want to see us struggle. But I continue to want to see it through because, number one, to make their dreams come true. Yeah. Number two, uh, I did agree with my mom. I did need some stability, right? Because had I gone out there with nothing to fall back on, I may not have been as bold in my choices. Because afterwards, I, I had an established career. I went on to Goldman Sachs. I worked at mid-sized firms. I ended up working at private equity fi uh, family offices. Then I worked at the big four companies and I, and I literally took a slice of every piece in the industry and I saw what that was like. Yeah. So as you're getting to like the more like corporate areas, like with like Erston Young, for example, like what did you start to realize about yourself and the professions, like the professionals around you? Number one, I wasn't fitting in. Why not? My mind didn't work the same way. And I think that that became very, very apparent at the higher levels. And there was this one moment where it just really clicked with me that it didn't fit. And it was one day my, I had a senior manager, he called me over and he told me, he's like, hey, Carl, uh, there's a little word around the office that like, you know, you're wearing your loafers without socks. I wasn't oh. wearing them without socks. <laughs> I was wearing them with no show socks. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I was like, no, I got socks on. And I took them off. There's no show. But like, I wasn't client facing. But that was my style. You get what I mean? If I was going to go into the office and I was going to wear that fit, I was going to wear it the way that I saw it was stylish. And it's like, you're, I feel like this corporate world, you're not even getting, you're not going to be able to play basketball when you want to. And now it's like, now they're coming from my identity, my fashion. Yeah, yeah. I, my way to express myself. Yes. And that was like part of me because of my, my the sneaker culture. And like, so, and, and I kind of thought about it and I was like, wow, like, it, it, it's, it's hard to be me here. And I also thought about it. It's like at work, I would also express and share a lot of like what I liked and what I, what I liked was a lot of like, I guess, entrepreneurial things. And like, I think upper management, um, like it's, I, I could see that I didn't fit the mold, you know, like it, I wasn't there. I wasn't their ideal candidate of somebody that was going to make partner, you know, like you could tell Carl was a young hustler but he's not a young hustler in the accounting game. Uh, I think it was just more like, I think on the higher levels, I think it's like, you're, you're looking to mentor, you're looking to 
promote the next candidate who's going to be the next best fit. Right. And I think that I just wasn't the next best fit. Right. So like you were good. You were good at your job. I, I, I was able to do my job. I don't want to say I was good at my job because I don't think that I ever let myself become so fully invested that I could be great. My mind was just wandering every single day I was at my desk. Every single day. Where was it wandering to? You know what was funny? I was taking MITx classes. Really? While I was out as, at my desk. I what was classes? listening. Uh, they had Entrepreneurship 101 classes oh, on edX. And I was taking a ton of edX classes, sitting at my desk, just listening to it in the background while I was crunching the numbers. And I think that that started to inspire me slowly to be like, wow, like one day I want to go to business school. I, I may not have made it to Stern, but I want to go to MITx. You know, I want to go to their entrepreneurial program. I want to go to Sloan, you know, and, and like that taking that entrepreneurial class. And I still remember it. It was, it was, uh, know your customer, you know, knowing your customer. And that class really hit for me because when I started to think about my business, it was all that learning that I did. So what was the business that you eventually thought of? 12 Pell, <laughs> the barbershop business. Yeah. How did it start? This idea didn't even develop at the desk and it wasn't even an idea that I had conceptualized before I had left the firm. Can you talk to me about leaving the firm then? So I had a friend at the time who became my partner and he was at PwC. Which is what? Another big four company, Cooper. And he was doing audit at the time and we had met selling shoes. It was funny because we were like, oh, we're both, at, we're both accountants. We're both selling shoes. And we were like, we we're like, this, this is something that we could do as a business one day. That's the spark. So how did you like, like curate that? I think it was, I think, well, the spark was, it was less of a spark. It was more like we felt like we were, um, we wanted to revive our souls in a different industry <laughs> revive our souls yeah i say i say that in a way that's like it sounds what it sounds <laughs> like is like the accounting world just destroyed your soul and you're like all right got this ember left let's start a fire again i i think it's like i say it in, but not i say it in the nicest way possible <laughs> okay. because i think it's like it, it's tiring sometimes mm. And, and sometimes like you still have a lot of love for like the accounting world. Yeah, absolutely. I have so much respect for the people that do it, you know, and I think that it's, it's a, it's a profession that provides so much value. Uh, and I think that it, you, you know, you constantly, you need people to be in that industry uh, and it's not easy. So that's why I have a lot of respect. Like it's a lot of work. And then like you're doing hundred hours on weeks and like there's, there's days that you leave the office at two to three in the morning. It's brutal, especially for somebody that can't sit still like myself. And I think that that's what I meant by reviving my soul. I just couldn't be still, you know, like I think that that lifestyle just wasn't for me. So where do you go from there? We went to Vegas first for EDC and we just let some steam off. Yep. <laughs> we just let it rip. We had a good time. We were, we were partying day out. Yeah, I mean, EDC is like the biggest like electronic dance yeah. festival ever. We got blasted. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that gave us our energy back and like our motivation for like, okay, life. Yeah. End of season. Let's enjoy ourselves. Let's get, let, let, this is life, you know? And then we decided to go out to LA right after. And in LA, 
we actually hung out. We met some people in Las Vegas during ABC, and one of them was a photographer for Hypebeast. What's Hypebeast? Can you explain what that is? Oh, Hypebeast is, like, is, is a digital publication um, that kind of like talks about the streetwear and culture, music now, a lot more things now. And a lot of people just used to follow it. And he was a photographer for that. And that was like a big deal at the time for yeah. like people in the culture. You know, it's like, oh, wow, like he's that guy that takes all the cool photos, products, art, And like those artists. photos are sick. I mean, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They go crazy. And like we were able to link up with him in L.A. And I think he was dating this YouTuber at the time. Really, really big YouTuber. Who? Sophie Chang, I believe. Sophia Chang or Sophie Chang. And we hung out with her for a day. And I just saw what her lifestyle was like. We went to this party, the Adidas do-over. She had like an area. People came up to her and was like greeting her. Um, she was making money being this public figure. And that was like a concept of success I never even imagined or was able to witness in front of me. And it, and it, and it just, it bothered me so much. You're like, how, how, how can I do it? It wasn't so much of how could I do that. It was just more like, wow, success is really what you make it. And it made me think about what success meant to me. And so when I went home, me and Matt were talking about it. I was like, yo. So, oh, my, my, my partner was Matt. And we, we, we sat down one day. And we were just thinking about, it, like, do we think we could turn our hobbies into a hustle that could become a full-time job for us? Like, because you saw this girl, Sophie, that probably it started as a hobby and then turned into this massive thing this massive success and you're like how can we do that right and so i picked up a camera and we're like yo let's vlog <laughs> and we're like yo let's just let's just try this out and like we were going to nike events because we were going there as like people who are in the culture trying to buy the sneakers yeah. and so let's just capture this and i think we shot like two or three episodes and like realized it was just too rough too rough yeah we just weren't talented we weren't made for the camera i think early on i i, I wasn't so I didn't have enough confidence to be positive. And I, and I was like, you know what? This might not be it, but we might still have something here if we want to open a business. And so I thought of this idea of opening a barbershop sneaker shop. And I pitched it to Matt because the block that I saw the empty store on one day as I was just walking and just letting my mind wander, there was a small little hole in the wall located at 12 Pell. And it was right across the street from this really busy business called Joe Shanghai. It's one of the, the most frequented tourist soup dumpling spots in Chinatown. And they would have massive spillover traffic of like 50 people waiting outside to get inside. And I saw that as an opportunity. I was like, wow, look at all these guys. Like, what if, what if we could get them to come in our store? That's spillover. And so we thought about it and it's like, yo, Let's open a sneaker shop. The reason why the barbershop came into the mind was this was Barber's Row. It was full of barbershops. And for us to place a retail shop there just seemed kind of odd. But also like to place, place a barbershop next to a bunch of other barbershops seems like there, there, there would be a lot of competition. Right. But it's funny because traditionally in Asian communities, that's how they place businesses. So like you'll have a whole area in Hong Kong where they just sell cell phones. You have a whole area where they just sell cameras and like a whole area where they, you just buy clothes. I think for them, it's just more about making a place for destination and just about allowing the availability of choice. And so 
there's an interesting story about that one too, because I wasn't sure how the community would feel about me entering the space, especially trying to open a barbershop. And a lot of the, the people on that block were OGs. Yeah, I, I imagine much older than you. Yeah, older barbers, older salon stylists. And like, how are they going to feel about a young cat trying to be a barber in their space, right? And I guess I was afraid of the apprehension that might come. But you know what? I was like, I think that there's an opportunity here because when I looked at the barbering game, I was like, yo, I go to a Dominican barbershop to get faded. And then I go to an Asian salon to get cut on the top because they understand Asian hair. So they're able to scissor the top the way that I want. But I love the way that the Dominican fade looks. The shape up, the line, the crisp lines, the fade, it's like everything that I wanted. And so I had to go to two places. Why isn't there one? It's because we're looking at bringing two different like styles from two different cultures together, right? And so why isn't it in one place? And that's when I was like, we could do something here. That was the moment where it's like opportunity. And I was digging and I was like, does this exist already? So I was like going on Facebook. I was asking my friends. I was like, yo, where do you get your cut at? And then I would, I would start to notice like people that had good cuts. And I'm like, where'd you get a cut at? This and that. And they're like, oh yeah, I did this. Finding that this was a problem that existed for a lot of my friends too. Um, and if they didn't deal with it, they just had it either really good clean fade on the side or they, and a really shitty top or a really nice top, but no clean fade on the side. And I found this barber in Brooklyn. His name was Tim. And his business was called Junior's Paradise. And this guy was cutting out of his basement in his flip-flops, in his gym shorts, and busting out these cuts. And he had a Facebook group called Junior's Paradise where people would sign up underneath each day and say, I'm coming at 3 o'clock. I'm coming at 4 o'clock. I'm coming at 5. And that was his digital waiting list. Wow. And I was like, this is nuts. Because he was just giving super great haircuts. Yeah. And, and I signed up. And I don't ever get out of Chinatown. And that day I got out of Chinatown. I went out there. I got a haircut. and. It was phenomenal. But two days later, I was at my friend's coffee shop. And my homegirl, Karen, she sees my cut and she goes, yo, that's a fresh cut. And I go, I got to have him. I got to have him. And so I, I was like, okay, this is it. This is the guy. We're going to make this a sneaker shop, barber shop. And I got to have Tim in there. And... One day I reach out to Tim again on Facebook and I say, hey, do you remember me? I got a cut from you. Would love to chop it up with you one day. I have this concept for, for doing this barbershop business. Would love to kind of pick your brain. And it's so funny because like he immediately was like, no, no, nah, I don't really want to. Like, it's cool. Like, like maybe yeah, next time. I mean, it's like, I mean, how many people approach someone else with like, I got a business idea. Yeah. yeah. But even funnier, I, I think he. That was his response because he was like, who the, who the F is this guy? And he, that, that's literally what he told me like, like later on after meeting him and getting to know him. He was like, who the F is this guy trying to steal my clients and yeah. take my business, right? And then uh, I ended up contacting one of our mutual friends. And I was like, hey, talk to him. Tell him like what type of person I am. Like I'm not here to steal his business or whatever it is. Like I just want to get a conversation with him. Please convince him to give me 15 minutes. And my friend is able to convince him because my friend was one of his best friends. And um, I got 15 minutes with him, sat him down, told him the vision. And he was like, it's kind of cool. It's like, I could kind of get down with that. And he was into sneakers too. So, so we met up and we came up with this agreement of like, okay, let's just try this out. 
try out like actually creating this spot in in that one place at like Barber's Row in Chinatown. Yes. Which was how long did this whole like when from when you saw that open spot in Barber's Row in Chinatown to where we are right now in the story? How long was that time period? Three to four months. I think it was enough time for me to look into the industry, the barbering industry, and realize that there was a real gap that the white space that needs to be filled for a certain type of customer. So did you tell Tim, like, this is the spot we got to do it at? Like, yeah. How did you get to that next point where it's like, okay, I got maybe a business partner. Now let's make this real. So there was this moment where he almost had cold feet and left us. And I think it was two weeks before we were supposed to go to Barber's. He was supposed to go to Barber's school. So it was all just the concept that we were just talking game about. And I was like, hey, Tim, you're going to have to take Barber's school for about four to six months. It's 550 hours, depending on how you allocate it. It could be four months. It could be six months, right? But you go to Barber's school. Uh, you nail that down. You get the Master Barber's license, which allows us to open the shop. And in that meantime, we're going to do construction. We're going to fix up the place. We're going to make it look nice. and in six months time, we'll grand open, right? We'll do a soft opening. That was the game plan. Two weeks before he was supposed to start with the barber school, he gives me a phone call and he goes, Carho, I'm going to have to be honest with you. I'm sorry, man. I can't do it. Why? That was how, what I said. I said, why? I was like, what's going on? And he's like, he's like, yo, man, I'm just sorry. I'm just thinking about it. I talked to my mom about it. And like, I don't think this is it. And then I was like, you know what? Let's talk in person. I want to, I want to get down to it. He drives over. We talk about it. I realized that it wasn't his, it wasn't something that he was fighting. It was more something that his mom was fighting and his mom didn't want him to be a barber. Mm. Why? The stigma, right? Blue collar on your feet, cutting hair. He was supposed to be a teacher. He went to school to, 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 to do physical education. And I think that that was something that his parents thought would be a little bit more respectable for him rather than to become a barber. Right. And did you ever like in this, in like in this, uh, lead up to actually starting the business, do you have any conversations with your dad? Like, and did he have any reservations? I'm going to tell you something. He had no idea. Really? Yeah. Why? My mom did. He had no idea. And the funniest thing is that the, the shop, I mean, 12 Pell is like literally four or five shops down from his local coffee shop that he hangs out at. As you were doing it right under his nose. I was coming in and out of that shop, looking outside the, 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 wind, the door and making sure that my dad would not see me. And there was a day where I brought him to the shop when it was like pretty much complete and I did a grand reveal. I walked him into the shop. I showed him the last chair and I said, dad, what do you think about this chair? And he was just so confused. He's like, why is my son bringing me into this empty, like the first half of the space looked like a retail space. The second half had three chairs. Why is my son bringing me into this barbershop? I could see like him just being super confused. And, he, and then he looks at me, he goes, this is not your chair, is it? And I go, uh, it's kind of, this is kind of like my chair and so are these chairs. And he's like, he's like, this is your place. And I'm like, maybe. Then he knows. And he's like, how much are you going to charge for a haircut? I said, 25. It's like, you're crazy. It's like, that's not going to work. It's like, they charge seven, $8 across the street. And so my dad's like, how are you going to compete? You got no shot. Did that make you feel any kind of way? When I think about the moment of it, I think 
part of me was like, he just doesn't understand the opportunity the way that I see it. And I don't blame him. But I was trying to build something for the younger generation in an aesthetic shop that was like brand new, that would have cool sneakers. So for me, it was like, hey, he just doesn't see it yet. And so let me prove myself with some time. So how did you begin proving yourself? Funny enough, we soft opened at 25 and it turned out to be a phenomenal price point. People ate it up. We were fully booked. And that's when I realized I underpriced. Because if we just grand open and we're, we're bustling out the door and like there's almost too many customers for us, I, I undervalued it. And then I ended up raising the prices two months after our soft open to what? 35. And so, so when we raised it to 35, we saw some drop in clientele, but we realized that there's something that we could build here. And I, and I continued building it into the additional value points of our business, which I realized that a lot of barbershops were missing. And that was my sell. That was our value prop. That this place is no longer just a haircut. This is a haircut, but also an experience and also an educational session. Right. This is, this is where you learn about how you can look your best. Yes. And so for us, we always not only just styled you out, but we taught you how to style yourself out. I, I, I would love to, if I'm walking into your shop, like what are you what are you saying to me like that to, to help me understand how to style better? So I think we changed our whole value prop from the beginning of you entering the shop. It's not even when you're in the chair, when you walk into our shop, we all greet you. Hey, how's it going? Do you have an appointment with us? And it's funny that, that that's where the value starts because that's where I realized the value starts at restaurants, hospitality venues, right? Like, why is it not done in barbershops? You know, like sometimes a lot of times you go in, you sit down and like, you kind of don't know what place you are in line and who's waiting for who. And so like, you don't even know what your wait time is. And that was always very frustrating for me when I used to go to barbershops. So when I, when we sought to build our experience, we we're like, Hey, we got to clarify that. So right when somebody steps in and say, like, Hey, how's it going? Do you have an appointment with us? Oh, are you waiting for a certain person? Oh, there's two people ahead of you. You can, you know, you could go next. And then they have an expectation. Oh, now like probably 30 minutes, you could go walk around and come back. And if you want to stay, we offer you a bottle of water. Hey, would you like a bottle of water? And right away, we're building rapport. And we're able to connect with you and make you feel like, hey, you step taken foot. care of. Yeah. Part of our family now. And then when you step into our chair, we think about it this way too. I also realized that a lot of the barbershop experiences, a customer is kind of like a number, right? You do 50 customers one day, you make 50, 50 clients worth of money. You only do 10, you make 10. So the barber is obviously incentivized to do more customers, right? And so customers just become a number to an end result. I had to change that mentality. And so I told my guys that from the beginning, we have to work together as a team to take care of these customers. And we can't look at them as numbers, but rather as people that we're making an experience for. And that will allow us to build our book of business so that we can create a greater impact in the future and incentivize us to be able to level up our skills to, to, to generate more money, charging more for haircuts. And we started at 35. But you know what our prices are now? What? We go all the way up to 245. Wow. I, I, I do want to get to that. But we are still now, in, going back to where we left off from the story, in like 2018. Um, and there is a 
uh, a barber shop app. Squ- is that Squire? Squire? Yeah. That you had a run in with early on in the 12 pal journey. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Oh, I'm so happy about that moment, actually. Um, I got to say to this day, that's one of our, our strongest relationships. Um, one that I'm very proud of. But in 2018, I met the founder of Squire Song at a barber show called the Belmont Barber Show. And it was a hair show that brought in some celebrity barbers. And they used to do this annually where they would host this barber jam and all the barbers would come in and just watch these celebrity barbers cut and explain their haircuts. I was standing right next to Song and I didn't know who he was at the time. And, but he just greeted me. He was like, Hey man, he's like, you're a barber. And I go, uh, sort of. Yeah. I'm like learning. And he's like, you guys have a shop. I go, yeah, we are about to build. Like I was there at that event before the shop was finished actually. And I was like, yeah, we're about to. And he's like, you, you guys uh, thought about using a POS system and I'd done my research and Squire was not one of the ones I was interested in actually. And I was like, I was like, okay. And I was like, yeah, yeah. We've looked into a couple. And like I had a couple in mind already, and I was like, "Tell me what makes you different." And he's like, "Cause I'm here." I was like, "Damn, he's fucking right." And I did not expect that response. And he's like, "Here, take down my number," because he's trying to build something. Like I, I think something that we've talked about a lot today is like doing something for the culture, like and the people, like, and the people involved in that, right? And it seems like I mean, like the the culture around barbershops is 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 one that's like like sacred to a lot of people yes and because i come from the sneaker culture and everything and like i see how people engage in the community with respect not only just to monetize from it i respect that a lot and i took that meeting with him and he was like here's my number i'm i'm uptown i'm from harlem down to meet up with you for coffee anywhere and let's chat and at the time, they didn't even have an office. I think it was he was like a three or four person team. And this is an idea. And like, this was just being super built. Super small. Super early. They were super early. And then I met up with him at a coffee shop. I listened to his story. He was a former corporate lawyer. And he ended up leaving that job. He and his buddy bought a barbershop, ran it for a year or two, realized that there were so many issues in running the barbershop that he, he realized that this could be solved with tech. And then he, he decided to go and sold the barbershop and decided to make it a tech venture. And then I, I listened to the story and I was just like seeing how he moved and seeing how he was like so intentional about being in the right places and supporting the people uh, and the community that he was trying to build the product for made me realize this is a guy that understands. So, uh, you were talking to them. How did they start to develop as you started to develop? It, it, was, it was an amazing relationship that we built together because we've watched each other grow over the years. Now, now to the degree that we have become like one of the largest uh, media voices for men's grooming. And now they have become one of the largest POS systems. Yeah. I mean, what, they're, they're going for like an IPO of like a billion or something. Yeah. Right? They, they've, they've hit unicorn status. So, so they, they've hit their billion dollar valuation. Insane. Yeah. It's they all cr- from an idea. Yes. All from an idea with a couple people and you met them at the beginning. Of yes. That. That's really, really cool. And, th- and that, that's something I'm super proud of because like we were constantly just like helping each other stay engaged in the community. 
Like we would work together at the convention shows. We would do different activations together. Um, you were hand in hand, hand in hand. So how does the flow of what you're doing get disrupted in 2020? Oh, 2020 was, was a really harsh time. I think it was, it really put my back against the wall because I think we realized it was do or die. And that was COVID. We, we had one barbershop. Uh, we were in person only. So you would come and you would get your haircut. And that was our main revenue stream. And by 2020, it was our main revenue stream because we talked a little bit earlier about how we had retail in the space, the sneakers. But I think a year and a half into the business, we realized that the men's grooming aspect, the barbershop, was the main reason why everybody was coming. And as much as the sneakers were an attraction and the culture, and it did a lot to help build familiarity and identity and comfortability for our audience that was coming in, uh, we weren't translating that in sales. And we realized we were just doing much, we would do much better just selling through the consignment platforms like Flight Club, Stadium Goat. And we, we ended up just taking off the sneakers from the wall, leaving remnants of like it in the design. But we ended up doing much more men's grooming products because that's what people were really interested in buying. And we made a shift there. But aside from the retail side, men's grooming products, when COVID hit, we had nothing to run our business on because everything was relying on people coming into our shop for a haircut. And at that time, the question in my head was, do we shift to try to sell men's grooming products at home? But it didn't really make sense, right? Because if you're not getting your haircut, you're not going out, why are you styling your hair? We could try to promote that. We could try to like tell our clients to, to purchase these products to support us, but it just didn't make sense. They're, they weren't going to get the value for it. And so it made me think like, okay, retail's out the question. Service is out the question. What the hell can we do? And I had nothing. And so like, I was just thinking about it. And I was like, you know what? I, I need to create some energy in our space, in our community. And I started hosting these little podcast sessions. And I, and I got together some local entrepreneurs and we just used to jump on a call once every week and we would get our community together to do podcasts. And that was our first dabble into content. Was the shop still even like open or would you close it down? Close. Everything was remote. We were just shooting this from our homes using Zoom. So, but were you paying rent on that? Yes. So is the money in the bank like just getting like lower and lower and lower each month? Like how, how are you? I was down to my last 70 grand. And 70 grand in my bank account only gave me a stretch of four to five months. And I was thinking about that. And I was like, oh, shoot. If this doesn't happen, like if I hold off on paying rent, which we did on the retail store, because I, I, I knew that four months was not enough. I had to pay that rent back. But, and we ended up doing so after we were able to reopen. But I looked at that timeline and I was stressed out. Or like, I, we have to find some way of making revenue. It can't be online sales. It can't be in person. So maybe it can be something with this podcast. And at the time, I didn't even think so far that we could turn, even turn that into a business that would generate revenue. But I was just willing to give it a shot. Yeah. So how did it develop from there? We had great feedback from the community. A lot of people loved it. I think we had a lot of perspectives to share between all the business owners. But 
I realized that it wasn't scalable and I didn't think that it was something that would build back into our brand as we reopened. And at the time, outside of podcast, TikTok was becoming really popular. There was no way you could not know what TikTok was at that time. And everybody was spending so much time at home on their phones. And I downloaded the app. I was like, let me give it a shot. I made a video myself and it was how to make boba tea. And I like made a bubble tea. And I was like, wow, this is pretty easy. It wasn't that bad. And I was like, now let me think about this. How do we do something for 12 Pell? And I took all the old photos and videos that I had of like the 12 Pell journey. And I made a little story. Here's a little story about how we started 12 Pell. I made a TikTok. Didn't hit that many views. Made another TikTok on like, like another, another concept of us doing a photo shoot with like hair. Didn't hit. I had all the time in the world. And I was like, why don't I just keep trying it? And eventually we were allowed to reopen um, in July. But at that time, I was not, I think I had lost faith in the idea that we would be able to make enough business cutting hair and selling product. And I think that I had to reshift my mind and think about something else. So when we hit the ground running again, after we were allowed to reopen, I said, we got to do content. Like, I want to break out of this dependency of us having to have our doors open. I want to do something where we can still operate without us having to be in person. And content was like the lowest lift, easiest access. I didn't have to get the craziest camera equipment. I had an iPhone. And it's like, I, I went in there. I started shooting videos. I did three types of tattoos in the barbershop. And I filmed dudes that had tattoos on their arms. And that actually went viral. I How mean, many views did it get? It wasn't viral. It was 14K views. But compared to our 300 or 100 views per video, it was something, right? Then I did one where I was like three types of hats. And I did like three different types of hats that guys were wearing in the barbershop. Then I did like fades and everything. And I just kept going. And I was just manning this at the time. But then I thought about it. I was like, you know what? I got to involve my guys. And I got all my guys together for a meeting. I said, hey, listen business is not good right now. Like, like let's, let's think about doing something here uh, and be productive during this dead time. Yeah. I was like, let's think of TikTok ideas. Let's do skits. Then my guys are like thinking about it. Like, you're right. Like why waste our time waiting for clients and just spending our time on our phones? Let's spend time making the content that goes on our phone. And we started pumping out content. And because like when you reopened, there was maybe like, like, like a half dozen people that were coming into the door every day. Like it was much lower. Our first week was the busiest week in history. And it's crazy because it's the busiest week because no one got haircuts for like three months. And then right after, it immediately dropped. And we had like four customers in a day, two customers in a day. And that was for the entire shop. And so me giving the team something else to focus on allowed us also not to stress about how shitty things were. And so I was like, and we were shooting skits. We were going off. We were telling little stories, like stories of each other becoming barbers. And how did the video start to do as you kept making more? Honestly, not too good. But we had our biggest break. This was July 4th, 2020. And so it was probably only like one or two, like a, like a week and a half after we reopened. But during that week, we were doing content and nothing was hitting. And then July 4th came. And I was just looking at the block and I was just thinking like, wow, this is so sad. We got all the OGs sitting outside on their stools. And like there was no customers coming into the block. Chinatown was completely shuttered. Like it was so quiet. You walk down to Tribeca or City Hall or you go down to St. Mark's and there's people there. And there's some restaurants that are still open for takeout, but there's life there. There's no life in Chinatown. 
because there's there was so much stigma around Asians and COVID. And so I realized this is not a problem that we're facing, that our shop is facing. This is a problem our community is facing. And so I I thought about that. And I was like, wow, we got to do something about this. We have to amplify it. We, have to, we got social media. Let's just try this again. So I told my guys, why don't we throw a July 4th barbecue? And so we went to Costco. We bought a bunch of hot dogs. We made hot dogs and we grilled it. We gave it out. And we, we were just bringing up the energy in the neighborhood. But that, the night before that event, I made a video to tell people we were throwing this barbecue, posted it online. And I went to sleep pretty late that night because we were like still hashing out the details of getting like the DJ and like the hot dogs and all that stuff going. And I woke up around like 1130. I remember looking at my phone and I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, why is there like 56 notifications? Like it was 50 something notifications. Click on it, it's all Instagram. And I click on it again. I look at it, it's like, oh, reshares. Uh, people were liking, commenting. It was going crazy. I think that day we got 13K views. Somebody had taken uh, our video and in our video, we told people, hey, we're doing the barbecue. Come by. Chinatown needs your help. And if you come down here and you spend $45 anywhere in our neighborhood, we'll give you a voucher to come back whenever you want for a haircut. And people started sharing it like crazy. I had no expectation of that. And it was on Twitter. And eventually the news outlets caught wind of it. And it's crazy. And then we ended up getting, um, we, we got first featured in a Chinese newspaper. Then ABC7 picked it up. And then we made another video to follow up with that and be like, thank you. Thank you to our community and the people that reshared our posts because now we got some attention for what's going on in Chinatown. Our neighborhood is hurting. These stores are going to shut down if you don't come down and support these stores. These stores have no social media presence. They're old school businesses that run on cash only. They're not able to convert to delivery platforms. They're not able to go e-commerce. If nobody comes and puts, puts light to the situation, we're going to lose our neighborhood. And it was like a cry for help. And we made another story thanking our community for sharing it and, and telling them the results of it and how we got on the news for it. And it's crazy because that story went 10x viral. And I think two or two days after posting that story, we got a major repost. I would have never expected this. It was from Bella Hadid. Bella Hadid. That's like, like what? She has like 20 million followers more? Insane. I don't know the exact number, but I remember waking up and having comments saying, Bella brought me here. We gained 10K followers because of her share. And she said, so proud of you guys on her post. And I was like, what is going on? That was beyond anything of our expectations at all. So how did things grow from there? Like, how did you, can, I, I, did you double down into content after that moment? We quadrupled down. We 10x down. We, we went, we were all in. And, and we, we had a meeting with the team. We said, oh my God, we now have an opportunity to really make some impact in our neighborhood. How, how are we going to play this? And so we were like, let's just keep doing this. The clients aren't back in our chair yet. Let's just keep going. And so we did another thing and another thing. But some of the things that we did was we helped this restaurant across the street from us, Taiwan Bear House. The owner, Chris, I just watched her every day get on her scooter and deliver the orders by herself. And I went over there and I said, hey, how come you're not using the delivery apps? Are you on those? Like, why don't you sign up for every single delivery app rather than making these deliveries yourself? She said, I would love to, but they take 30%. 
And like after that, and like I'm not making much. And like I don't even have enough supply, right? Because I don't have the cooks. So so like every dollar and every order counts to her. So we're like, oh snap, let's bring some light to that. And I and I didn't even realize how much the delivery fees were. They're a lot. And I was like, no wonder these Chinatown businesses can't afford to do delivery apps because Chinatown food is pretty inexpensive in itself. So if we're talking 30% off of like a $7 lunchbox after food cost and your delivery, what are you really making? And so it's like, crap, people have to know. And so we did this thing where we were like, we're going to make deliveries for her for an entire day. And it's going to be free delivery. You just order from her, order through us. We had a tight form set up. What did you want? And we delivered the dishes. And it would be us going to our friends and our family. We taped the whole thing and we put a piece of content together and we put it out. That, that got a lot of views and a lot of engagement. And we just kept going. And every week it was just like a different project. How can we shed light on the fact that we need help? When did it turn from like helping the community to focusing more on like the the barbershop work? It was towards the year end when things were starting to get better and businesses and people were starting to come back out into the neighborhood. And I think as much as we could help the other businesses, I think the organizations that were far more impactful in terms of a monetary standpoint were able to do their thing. And that's when we were able to exit out and start to focus like, hey, what are we going to do for ourselves? How did you start to develop your repertoire of formats that would do well on, on social media and also attract attention to the shop? You know what? In the very beginning, we didn't have any idea. And so we were literally it was just like throwing spaghetti on the wall, seeing what sticks. And we, we shot all different types of content. And we just, every single day, we just had a goal. Every single day we were going to hit, at first it started with four videos. Then we made it six. And then we realized six was too much. We were killing ourselves. Then we went back down to four. And then we consistently kept doing it until we saw what the audience liked. And then we started to double down on those things. And we were just conceptualizing different ideas, remixing it, repeating it, reworking it. Um, sometimes even reposting the same content that we really liked just to see if it would work. And it was just wrong timing, right? And it was just getting the stuff out there. And how was your account building? Like, like what, what were your numbers at this point? I think very early on, it was still low. I think we were still like in the 20 to like 50K standpoint. I think it wasn't until one year in where we finally hit 100K. And that number felt like the biggest number in the world to us. And so we, we at that moment, we were like, let's, let's get good gear. So we, we, we took away the iPhones. We bought some Black Magics. Because we're using cameras, the the feeling of the video will feel so different, you know? Um, we'll, we'll have more of that theater feeling to it. And we, we could stand out a little bit more. That's when we started to really grow from 100 to our first million. And when we hit our first 1 million, I remember it aligned right around the time where they also got us a billboard in Times Square. And that was right around our 1 million celebration. And also at the same time, we decided to throw a party at a strip club. So you guys are really balling out. Yeah, yeah. And, and when I say we threw a party at the strip club, it was prior to COVID, we were known for our community experiences. And what I mean by that is I love bringing together people in a very unorthodox experience because it becomes a memorable one. 
So we threw parties in food courts where we take over the entire food court at night, leave a couple of the vendors open and throw a club party in the back and like have like a little speakeasy in the basement. We've done Lunar New Year parties where we brought lion dance shows, like theatrical performances inside the club. So like for us, it's like connecting people through these weird experiences. And so when we did our 1 million party at the strip club, it was just so crazy at time because it was like, I think about one and a half years out of COVID. I think we were, we were just really happy to be able to make that memory, that core memory for everybody. Yeah. Cause I mean, you've, you've come so far and that's kind of like a marker. So with everything that you've accomplished, where is everything with 12 Pell today? Well, right now we're really excited because I think we're about to embark on our next chapter next year in 2024. And the entire team has rallied up really, really heavily because I think we have a really big opportunity to become the men's Sephora in the industry. And what I mean by that is, first of all, we, we generate about 200 million views a month across our platforms. I think it's actually growing much, much faster than, than I even know it actually. But we've already captured the audience's attention as the voice of authority in the men's grooming industry. And we want to be able to continuously serve people, not only in our chair, but outside of it. And I think that where we can really make impact is helping guys figure out their personal care routine. And finding the right products has often been a struggle for all guys. Because if you're not learning from your barber, you're learning from your girlfriend. And this year, um, with a couple of new content series that we're bringing up, uh, a lot of new brand partnerships that we're doing with uh, personal care men screwing brands, we're, we're looking to build a portfolio of brands that we really can stand behind, that our community approves. And I think that's the direction that we're headed in. And I think our team is entire, entirely excited because I think, yeah, we're, we're not looking at doing business behind the chair anymore. We're not, we don't have to stand behind the chair. We're looking at doing business outside of it, through our phones, through our computers. And I think that that access to freedom brings it back to a full circle moment of us not having to be chained to our desks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Siyu Pan, Kenny Wright, Josie Yo, Matt Fernandez, and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tiersma, and Yao Luo. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.